People from around the country worried about dirty waterways are meeting in Wellington next weekend with the aim of setting up a New Zealand network of citizen-led river patrols to protect the environment. This Radio New Zealand Insight investigates one of the drivers behind the move, the efforts to improve the health of a major Northland river. On a sunny Saturday morning in February, a small fleet of kayaks and a Pennsylvania riverboat are launched on the murky brown waters of the Wairua River, west of Whangarei. Among the paddlers are local Komatua, Green MPs Russell Norman and Eugenie Sage, a Whangarei district councillor, a farmer from upstream, a couple of reporters and the man who organised the kayaks, the kai and the portaloo, Milan Rooker. For months he's been urging anyone who'll listen to get their bum wet, as he puts it, get out on the rivers and see what he's been documenting for the past year. I'm Lois Williams and for this insight I paddled an eight kilometre stretch of the Wairua, spoke to councils, environmentalists, farmers and tangata whenua about why Northland rivers are so grubby and what they think can be done about it. There's willows and trees everywhere, you know. There's not, not much left in there, not much trees left. Heaps of places for the birds to birds to perch and all that, you know, and, and the water was all... The, water, the only time the water was dirty is when they had a bit of a flood. You probably two about two days and it's, and it's cleared up again. Yeah, but now it's just like this, just about all the time. Henry Rocker is 84, and the Wairua is no longer the river he grew up on. According to his nephew Millen, what's happened to the Wairua and its tributaries is desecration. He came home to Whangarei after years of working overseas to find the rivers he swam in, fished and drank from as a boy were now more like drains. He's filmed kilometres of barren, unfenced, crumbling riverbanks, cows and cattle standing in the streams, pugging the verges, defecating or lying dead in the water. And there have been times when the former merchant navy seaman turned building inspector has felt despair. One day, a few months ago, before Christmas, coming down the river and saw cows everywhere, dead cows. I think I've got seven on that day on the river. Um, massive amounts of sacrifice grazing. I'm talking for 15, 20, 20 kilometres heavy sacrifice grazing. Uh, I filmed it, the whole, whole one end to the other. I think I might have accumulated 600 photos, I think, on that day. And... Uh, so where there's a dry cow pad, I'd kick it over, you know, to show you it didn't look like dirt, film it, and then just sort of really trying to gain that full, clear picture as evidence of how it is up there. I got down to a big herd of dairy cows and um, decided oh, I'll film these two, trying to get their tags actually and within the film, and sat opposite them on the river bank and, and I thought, oh, I'd better have some lunch, it's been a long day and uh, got my orange and stuff out, started to peel it and then I just realised I've had that much crap and mimi on my hands just from what I was doing when in the water, paddling in and out of the waka, that, you know, I just didn't feel clean. I was looking at the cows on the other side and I didn't want to eat my, my kai. And uh, I just... It, it really struck me the enormity of what devastation's been happening on our rivers. I was well aware of it, but I was, here I am studying it now. 
and uh, I just had the kai on the side of the riverbank and didn't have my kai and then came home. Not eating was probably a good decision. Northland rivers show consistently high levels of E. coli bacteria. The Wairua and nearby Mangakahia come close to the bottom of the list on Niwa's league table of New Zealand rivers suitable for swimming. Last year, Milan Ruka turned 60 and he set himself a goal to try to clean up the rivers he loved and find out why eel numbers have been dropping year by year. He spent his retirement savings, $100,000, on an American-built riverboat with a jet outboard, a truck to tow it and camera gear with built-in GPS function. And he set about patrolling the rivers, filming the cars fouling the water and the banks. He sent off a dozen detailed reports with photos and GPS data to the Northland Regional Council, assuming this was information it didn't have and would want to know about. And he was astonished when the council said there was little it could do. I really tried to keep out of the politics of things, but uh, now that our trust is on the 10th report, the responses with the factual evidence, no innuendo, we just deal in facts, photographing pollution, heavy grazing, stock uh, fouling the rivers, right at the river's edge. Trust has been determined to film and have hard evidence. <coughs> no cordial, just deal with the facts. Um, but the response has been, I'm really, really disappointed in the response. The Regional Council's response was to write to the offending farmers, reminding them of the aims of Fonterra's Clean Streams Accord. The Council's own publication, A Guide to Riparian Management, backs up Milan Rooker's claims that stock in rivers is one of the main sources of water pollution in rural areas. It quotes a study showing that one herd of 246 cows crossing a stream just twice deposited 37 kilograms of faecal matter in the water, posing a health risk to swimmers and other stock. But the council says it can't compel farmers to keep cattle out of the rivers because there's no rule to that effect in its soil and water plan. The chairman, Craig Brown, a former dairy farmer himself, last year called repeat offenders who spill dairy effluent arrogant players in an arrogant industry. But he says previous councils have felt it would be too much of an imposition on farmers to make them fence off waterways. Our plans do not allow us to make it uh, compulsory for farmers. We have an old plan, 10 years old, those plans are all under review. We cannot at the moment force farmers to permanently fence off streams. But um, uh, because council has chosen the education path rather than the uh, enforcement path, so uh, if that has to change then there is a vehicle uh, to do that and that's by plan change. The Environmental Defence Society, whose lawyers and planners regularly challenge the resource management decisions of councils and court, rejects that argument. The Society has successfully litigated many cases involving water, and it says the Resource Management Act provides councils with all the power they need to keep stock out of water. Its chairman, Gary Taylor, says other councils have found ways to compel farmers to fence, but some, including the Northland Council, apparently lack the will to do so. I think some councils are more professional uh, and objective in their responses than others. Um, a few regional councils seem to be dominated by uh, farming interests, not all of which are, um, uh, are negative, I'd have to say. I mean, farmers themselves and farming organisations are moving rapidly uh, to address some of these issues. 
but some regional councils still have the sort of the old uh, view that um, you know if I'm a farmer on a regional council um, I'm not going to prosecute another farmer and that's uh, ignoring their statutory responsibilities and is quite wrong. Craig Brown says the regional council is not ignoring its statutory responsibilities. He says though there are several farmers on the council, it regularly prosecutes other farmers who flout their resource consents for disposing of dairy effluent and the results have been some extremely hefty fines. But Gary Taylor says what Milan Rooker's meticulous reports have shown is that the council is turning a blind eye to the major pollution caused by farmers using rivers and their banks to graze and water stock. He says those reports have provided the society with enough evidence to take the council to the Environment Court. Well, we've noted the responses of the Northland Regional Council, both uh, in the correspondence with us and in some of the comments they've made in various media. Um, we think they're wrong. Um, we're going to be writing to them and pointing out what we think the correct interpretation of the law is and what their responsibilities are and how practical it would be for them to intervene um, and asking them uh, if they agree. And if they don't, then we will uh, go to the, the Environment Court and seek a declaration as to whose interpretation of the law is right. There is a broader context here that I should just add, and that is that I think many regional councils around the country, since the establishment of the Land and Water Forum, have really picked up their game. Many of them are doing quite well anyway, but I think regional councils nationally have got uh, their heads together collectively around what best practice under the current law looks like. And so we'll be sharing this letter to the Northland Regional Council with that consortium of national regional councils and see if we can get some peer group pressure brought to bear as well. The best practice Gary Taylor talks about might look a lot like Ben Smith's dairy farm on what was once one of the world's biggest wetlands, the Hikarangi floodplain north of Whangarei. Ben Smith and some of his neighbours fenced off their stretch of the Wairua River several years ago to stop cows falling in. It cost him about $40,000 to install posts, a hot wire and water troughs for the cows on a 50-hectare riparian strip beside the Wairua that he leases from the Whangarei District Council. Now Mr Smith says he's thinking of ripping it all out again and surrendering his lease because the council's just put up the cost of the lease and his rates by about 80% to cover improvements to its swamp drainage scheme including new pumps and stop banks. But he's taking pleasure in seeing native vegetation return to the riverbanks, including a hebe thought to be extinct. And he says he'd be doing more planting if he had the time and the money. Like uh, the cabbage trees, a classic thing that could be planted here quite you know, easily. And we, we need, on a floodplain, we need a tree that has its um, leaf system at the top and a, you know, quite a thick stem at, all the way through. And, and that's, that's why the cabbage trees are surviving down here. All those ones there are wild. And that's, that's 10 years now they've popped up. And, and there is that many cabbage trees in there that we've got our own little nursery there. But 30 kilometres downstream, there's not a fence in sight and a different sort of farmer makes an appearance. An older couple who roar up on a quad bike to check out the kayakers find green MPs inspecting cow pats on their riverbank. The MPs are distressed to see a bubbling spring clouded by cow dung 
running into the Wairua. That doesn't look pleasant to me. Listen, we've just had 50 mils of rain. I don't know, you know, come down in another week if we haven't had rain and it'll be clear. We're going to. I'm not going to plant it at my cost. If you people want to come and plant it on the weekends for me, I'll fence it. Well, we'll fence it because we yeah, have to. End of story. Sorry, even though you've generated quite an income off using this land, sort of putting something back. What do you mean I've generated quite an income? I had to pay for it, I didn't get it for nothing. Well, there are costs to the river from the farming here. What do you mean cost? Well, it's the community that bears the cost of dirty water and the river and um, Milan's Mokopuna who can't go swimming in it. Yeah, but it, it, it flows through the like, log and trucks spitting fumes, fumes out on the side of the road anyway. as, they, as, they, as they cross the bridge. It's, the eels it's still come. Go and ask Peter Hemera. We yeah. let them in. They come down here. They we, catch we, we, the eels. We, we get truckloads of marys here from from March to, to May. Until Come 12 o'clock at night, get them, get them, truck But according to Māori, who fished the Wairua for generations, the eel or tuna numbers have been declining for decades, and in just the last few years they've plummeted. Henry Roka and George Tuhiwai say in the old days of abundance, Hapu would camp by the river each March for the annual eel harvest. That's when the tuna whakaheki, the mature migrating eels, some up to 60 years old, make their one and only journey downriver from the Hikarangi Swamp to the Kaipara Harbour. They then head for the Tonga Trenches, 2,000 kilometres away in the Pacific, to breed and die. The two men look back at what they see as the good times. When the uh, migrating eels uh, started, they come down and uh, catch the eels. Stay all the local families? Yeah, stay all night. Yeah. Uh, stand in the river with the um, kerosene lights and hook the eels, yeah. Good fun. It used to be good fun. Oh, we used to, of course, we used to smoke a lot. Catch them, smoke them. And the old weeping willows used to be around these places on these rivers we call Annas and Toreras, this cave and crevices where the eels live. You could go down there, you spend 10 minutes down there, and you can fill a super sack of eels. And this is back in the 60s. From there to now, I'm very sad to say, you can uh, you can fish for the, for the eels here and be lucky to go home with two or three. The hapu along the river believe it's not just pollution, but also the Wairua power station that's killing off the eels. The government took the Wairua Falls and the surrounding Māori land in 1909, ostensibly for a scenic reserve, but it then sold the land to Dominion Cement for a hydroelectric scheme. George Tuhuai says his grandmother was offered five pounds in compensation, an offer she angrily declined. The power station's owned these days by the lines company North Power, and the falls, once celebrated as the Niagara of the North, now run at a trickle, except when the Wairu is in flood. The river's been diverted into a narrow, fast-flowing canal to power the turbines. A fourth turbine was added in 2007, and Māori suspect that's been one problem too many for the tuna. We are looking at hours at a tide. They're actually dry on their body. You can see that here, where they'd rather be moist. But their tenacity, can you notice in the, in the half a dozen we can see, they're all pointing one way, not pointing back this way. They know that they're going to have to go around there. Milan Ruka says every spring, millions of tiny elvers who'll grow into Tunaheke begin to fight their way upstream from the Kaipara Harbour to the Hikarangi Swamp. Their ancient pathway was up the wet rocks of the Wairua Falls. 
but these days they're lured by the flow of the water up a 30-metre spillway to the rigours of the canal or to the base of the penstocks, a dead end. This year, after repeated approaches from Tangata Whenua, North Power installed a chute up the side of the penstocks for the elvers to climb into a bucket. George Tuhuai spent his summer collecting them from the bucket and releasing them upstream, where they have some chance of survival. The furthest north I've been is, a, is about oh, 100 and, 128 kilometres from here, called Akerama, because they are the head waters that feed the Wairua. So, uh, the name of those hours is Wairiki, uh, Wairatu and Whakapara. And they feed into the Hikurangi Swamp, and then from the Hikurangi Swamp it feeds down here to the Wairua. So I, I go all over the Rohe here, dropping off in all the estuaries, streams and so far we've moved our team we've moved um, 718.71 kilograms of eels back into the headwaters if that uh, a kilogram is equal to 6,500 fish then we've moved a mass of 4,671,615 uh, fish so far for the big eels heading downstream in March, the picture is grimmer. The lucky ones make it over the falls if the station's spilling enough water, but thousands washed up dead in the Wairua last year after summer floods trapped them in warm, deoxygenated water behind the Hikarangi stop banks. A Niwa scientist, Jacques Boubet, who's now advising North Power on eel management, says the big pumps that drain the Hikarangi farms are a threat as well. Eels, of course, will tend to move downstream during sort of flood event. But of course, if you're behind a pumping station and your urge is to migrate downstream, you feel that uh, current moving through the pump, eventually, or through a power station turbine, your urge eventually will say, hey, that's the only way I've got to go through. And of course, they end up chopped up, um, like a, going through a bean slicer. Most of them, if there's a spillway uh, in power station, they will go over the spillway. At the pumping station, some of them may hold back and then move once the pumps stop uh, running. But according to Milan Ruka, the spillway at the Wairua power station is a killer. There's no deep pool at its base as there is at the falls, and the big breeding eels, which come rushing down the canal, plunge to their death over a 30-metre cliff onto the rocks below. I believe uh, on average that the nearest size is 2 million to, to 3 million eggs in each one. It's a pregnant mother going over these cliffs here, cliff face here. Nothing can survive that. I defy anybody that, that looks over there and says, how can anything survive over there? I'm one of the few that know. Come up and had a look and found them many a time. They're, they're yeah, crushed up, damaged, pulverised, usually dead and, uh, or, or dying, you know. The resource consent for the power station says North Park must provide devices for the safe passage of fish. But Tangata Whenua say until this summer, 20 years after the consent was granted, the power station owners have made no attempt to meet that condition. North Power says it's now working on the problem with Niwa scientists, but until recently it wasn't aware the eels were in trouble. And it says the regional councils never insisted on compliance. I took a copy of the resource consent to the regional council chairman, Craig Brown, and I asked him why not. If there is meant to be... Um, some facility provided, then I, my only answer to that is it should be. I will ask our staff, to, as a result of you telling me this, to go off and find out what the story is about this consent. If that's the right consent and those are the right conditions, 
my request of them would be, please explain to me why this is not being attended to. Simple as that. And that, of course, would then lead to the owner of the facility explaining to our staff, or me, why it's not there and what they're going to do about it. Several kilometres downstream from the power station, a narrow, crystal-clear tributary enters the muddy Wairua. It's the Waiho stream, and the reason it's still clean is that the hapū to Uri Uroi has worked with local farmers to keep it that way. The head of that um, uh, stream is the Porutī Springs area, and that's actually a reserve, Māori reserve, and was reserved in 1895 for the hapū by the Māori Land Court then. So we've always been responsible for it. And, and, you know, the reason that we've worked on the entire flow is we've always thought we were responsible for that too. You know, that's just how we've always, we thought that's what we were meant to do, is look after it. Meryl Carter of Te Uri Roroi says the mission to protect the Waiho began some years ago. And in this case, the regional council came to the party with fencing money from its environment fund. What happened was the, the people, Waimari and Marae, our people there, called a meeting of the farmers um, one day, a barbecue actually, got them together and suggested, you know, that we need to clean up pretty much. And they were mostly really enthusiastic. And the best part was we had a relationship, had started a relationship with regional council, so we were able to make funding applications on behalf of those farmers through the Environment Fund at Regional Council. So the um, Hapu people did that on behalf of farmers. And um, so most farmers were funded to fence. But despite its original ownership of the springs and its caretaking efforts on the Waiho and the Wairua, the Hapu has no control over who gets to use or sell the water. The Regional Council determines that, and it recently reallocated water rights to the springs and the stream for 35 years to an irrigation company, a water bottling company, and the Whangarei District Council. Merrill Carter says the Poroti people are mostly very poor and would benefit greatly from an industry based on their ancestral waters. But she says the Resource Management Act doesn't recognise any Māori rights over the water, and they've now lost their chance of exercising them for another 35 years. The Hapu are now taking their case to the Waitangi Tribunal, joining the New Zealand Māori Council's claim on water that was lodged last month. Ownership is not a word that people want to hear, but you know, we know about many instances around the country, European landowners, all kinds of landowners, that sell water. You know, they sell their water. And look, see, even the water company is selling that water. So is the bottling company are going to sell that water. So how can you say that they don't own it if they're selling it? It's like a, a, a proprietal right, is that, that's the latest term. Is they, they, it's their property so they can sell it. Even further downstream, the groups working to restore the mighty Kaipara Harbour to health are applauding the efforts of the Whangarei River Patrollers. Leanne Makey is a marine biologist working for Te Uriaho, who are leading the campaign, aiming to fence off coastal farms and plant two million trees by 2015. Ms Makey says everything that comes down the Wairua and then the Wairua flows into the Kaipara Harbour, the ultimate catchment for 50% of the Northland region. And the harbour that once teemed with life is now under threat from sedimentation and an excess of nitrogen, phosphorus and farm chemicals. She says if that kills off the remaining seagrass in the harbour, the West Coast snapper fishery will go with it. 
Well, the evidence that's come about is, is vital to that fishery, commercial fishery. So they found that you know the majority of juvenile snapper come from the Kuiper Harbour, particularly subtidal seagrass habitats and structured habitats in the Kuiper. Yeah, so the, the Kuiper plays a vital role to that commercial sector. Mullen Rooka says since he began his river patrols last year, he's seen some horrible sights, but he's also been given hope to believe that times are changing. The Whangarei District Council's decided to make fencing and planting mandatory on all its riparian land in the Hikarangi Swamp. The government has also announced a grant of $8 million to clean up four of New Zealand's most badly polluted rivers, lagoons and wetlands. And Fonterra is about to make fencing of many streams compulsory for its suppliers. The Land and Water Forum is bringing together all the groups with an interest in freshwater quality to reform the way it's managed. But until all the rivers run clean, Milan Rooka believes it's going to take the efforts of everyday people, with kayaks and cameras, to hold landowners and the authorities to account. I spoke to a farmer um, on the phone there a few weeks ago, and uh, well, this is what he said. He said he bought his sixth farm on the swamps up there, uh, but he couldn't, didn't know the name of the river that they all border onto. <laughs> I think, you know, farmers are the backbone of the country, that's, that's for sure. Uh, we need them, uh, you know, uh, that's what's keeping us going through these hard times. Um, but we just got to get them to recognise that this river here, all rivers in their backyard, all flow on to, uh, you know, they're part of life. If we don't have those rivers, we've got nothing. Milan Ruka aims to spread his message at the inaugural meeting of Environmental River Patrol's Aotearoa. I'm Lois Williams and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or a tweet to rnz underscore insight. The programme was written and presented by me, Lois Williams. It was produced by Philippa Tolley. Technical production was by Colette Jansen.